Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Shading Cambridge. It's been a very, very, very long time and we're happy to be back. Um, it's a new academic year and of course we had to start with uh, a fantastic new episode. Um, so if you don't already know me, which you should by now, I am Anawa. I am a final year, ridiculous, final year student um, at Wolfson College, Cambridge, doing politics and international relations. And I'm here with my colleague, and I usually call her my partner in crime, Megan Poe. <laughs> hey, I'm Megan. Same as Anawa, doing um, HSBS at Cambridge, Sociology and Politics. And I'm excited to be doing an episode of what is our final year? So we have three amazing guests with us. We are so, so excited to have them with us. So Charlie, take it away. Hi all, my name is Charlie. I've just finished my PhD um, at Wolfson in sort of material science related stuff. Um, but I'm now leading Wolfson's Interdisciplinary Research Hub in Sustainability and Conservation. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Lashanti Chap, a Bahamian marine conservationist and science communicator. Super excited to be here. I'm also a Wolfson College person, so it's nice to see all these familiar faces. Hi everyone, Reinhard Nyandere. Um, a recent or almost graduate from the Master of Philosophy in Conservation Leadership from Kenya. Right now, I'm a biodiversity conservation consultant working with different global organizations around conservation, but my main focus right now is around wildlife economies and conservation economics in Africa. It's a pleasure. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Um, and yeah, no, this is an episode we've been so excited to do um, and there's so much we want to talk about. Um, so I'm just going to jump in, actually, because I think I did not know a lot about climate justice, the climate emergency before this summer. Like I was kind of just walking around blind, living my life. Everything was chill. Um, and then the weather hit 40 degrees in London. And at that point, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. And I think I said to myself, like, oh, my goodness, the climate emergency is here. And then something was like, the climate emergency been here, Anwar. What are you? It's been hot. It's, it's been hot. It's like, you know, it's it's been damaging. It just hasn't been damaging in your part of the world. And that's why you haven't paid attention. And so I guess I just want to start by what is climate justice? Can someone help me out? I feel climate justice is really um, action around regulating kind of the right um, um, environmental um, status that we should have as, 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 as humans. So it's um, aligning um, uh, the environmentalism into, um, I would say, uh, the human rights of the basic human rights, the connection between the two. So it's a broad kind of explanation, but that's how I understand it. Yeah, I think it's it's important to note um, with climate justice, the big overarching theme is yes, climate change is affecting everyone, but it's affecting people disproportionately, um, especially, unfortunately, people who live in small island developing states or even just uh, second and third world countries. Um, unfortunately, they are the ones that are facing the brunt of this climate change uh, crisis. Yeah, and, and I would agree with both those definitions. For those who might be interested in, in a good search term to look up on the internet um i would have a look at the just transition if we are as a global society to address climate change we could probably actually sort it all out tomorrow if we displaced millions of people and mandated that people leave their homes and you know you know made the whole of france a forest or whatever it was you know and um, we could do that tomorrow as a, as a society but it wouldn't be just 
Um, and so if you look up this idea of a just transition, um, you'll find uh, lots of good terminology and, and phrases that will help you advance on this thinking yourself. So a lot of us here probably aren't very familiar with climate change, with the climate emergency, what actually is going on. I think a big question that often comes up is things like, how much time do we have? What do we do, etc. But give us the lay of the land, brutally honest. The Shanti, Charlie, Reinhard, what position are we in right now? Uh, we're not. We're not in a good position. Um, a lot of people, when this climate change crisis started, we very much were in a place where it was, oh, well, we can mitigate. We can do something to slow down and prevent it. We're no longer there. We are at the place where we need to now learn how we're going to adapt to these hotter temperatures and adapt to the fact that these hurricanes are stronger. We have more rain happening. We have mudslides. We have people who are literally dying due to things that happen from these extreme weather events. It's getting too hot and it's getting too cold and, and people are going to have to start moving to different countries. And, and I don't even want to dive into the issues we already have with immigration. So I think people are not people are focused too much on well how much longer do we have and not looking at well what is happening right now right now we need to act and right now the world is already for lack of better words crumbling so a few facts that actually got to me were that by 2050 sea levels will have risen to the point that parts of amsterdam venice and large parts of bangladesh are likely to be underwater when it comes to high temperatures and extreme weather events we will have more heat waves, more droughts, more storms, more hurricanes. In London, for instance, 40 degrees will probably be the least of our worries. It's actually predicted that the climate of Leeds will be closer to that of Melbourne by 2050 and that we will see a trebling of heat related deaths by 2050. And that will be around 7000 deaths a year. And that's just in the UK. To anyone that is feeling terrified right now, I can completely relate. This was me a couple of months ago. I literally was freaking out. Um, this sounds very doom and gloom, but um, according to the IPCC, there is still time. We just need to act now. Like time is of the essence. There's a lot of urgency in this. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about all the actions that we can take later on in the episode. I can probably relate to a lot of the people that are listening right now and feel very new to this topic and, um, and probably have a lot of misconceptions. So I want to kind of hone in on something that I, I don't know whether people will share or not, but really opened my eyes to this and probably was one of the first things that made me really think about this. Um, it was this misconception that people that talk about climate change are almost like hippie tree huggers and they love cows and, you know, like just random stuff like that. And I was just there like, don't care too much about the cows or the grass or, you know, words I didn't quite understand, like biodiversity, etc. Um, but the thing that shook me out of that really quickly was that actually when we're talking about climate change yes we're talking about nature and the earth etc but we're really just talking about whether human beings will continue to have a place to live and i think such a good point with that is the fact that humans are the only species on the planet that do not adapt to their environment they adapt their environment to them and in us doing that oh it's a little too hot so let's build air condition it's oh it's a little too far of a walk let's bring a car, you know, let's use fossil fuels. So in us trying to adapt the environment to ourselves, we have ultimately killed the environment. The earth would be fine without us. They don't need us here. We need it, you know? Exactly. The climate crisis is a fight for people. I think we can all get behind that. Um, 
obviously we, we want to talk about the I guess the more specific racial justice element to climate justice and we acknowledge as well that that's going to touch on so many other kinds of justice so we want to talk about all of those together um but can we just kind of roll back let's go all the way back where where did this begin this intersection between racial injustice and I guess damage to the the planet from an African perspective um traditionally not just African but everyone um, but the African life depended heavily on biodiversity or environmental resources that we had so we used to live in tandem with nature it provided so we used to take care of nature because it took care of us there was a spiritual connection to nature there's a cultural connection to nature. There's an intrinsic value that Africans, the, the traditional African attached to nature. But then the rain started beating us when school was introduced and when colon, colonialism you know, came to um, to Africa, where now there's a huge change into you know the new they call it the agrarian revolution, move you know moving from what was called um, 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 primitive kind of living systems into the large scale kind of agricultural produce to serve who different people in different other parts of the world um, that came with a lot of um, what you call the slave trade and all that. So uh, the way Africans used to live with wildlife was considered uh, primitive. Yeah, um, and you know, I, I know that um, I will take the time to acknowledge that the Bahamian people that are currently in the Bahamas are all descendants from West Africa. Um, all of our indigenous people were unfortunately wiped out due to um, colonizers bringing diseases, viruses, and all sorts of things from the other side of the world. Um, but one thing that has been very prevalent with this is it's just that the people who got all the money first or figured out ways to weaponize first came to other places around the world to take over. Um, there was a sense of entitlement that they felt to other countries' natural resources simply for their own personal gain. There was never this view that, oh, we're coming to other countries to purely discover and explore the world. Even just from a Caribbean perspective with this, um, when it is conservation and when it is even things like tourism, our countries are meant to, to stay very underdeveloped so that the countries that have been developing a lot longer can continue to pollute the environment, which is the cause of climate change. And they tell us that we are now the ones that need to ensure that we're not developing and we're not building um, buildings in mangroves or forests because they need to preserve these areas for the damages that they have done, rather than taking a look at their own country, right? And saying, well, we've developed far too much. Let's maybe break things down that are not being in use and plant more trees there. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for that. Um, Charlie, I guess um, I wonder whether you have a, um, a perspective on the UK, the global north. We could argue that development has been harmful in the global north in cases, right? I wouldn't say that we are more developed. I'd say that we're maldeveloped. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point. I mean, just going on, on building off of what both Reinhardt and Ashanti say, where we are very much behind um, like you say, in quotation marks, developed countries, is that the, some of the most original thinking as to what is quality of life comes from indigenous thinking around the world. Um, exactly as Reinhard, you, you talked about the fact that you have a responsibility, traditional human thinking is that you have a responsibility to the land, so the land then can provide for you. A lot of the Western world development into the rest of the world through colonialism has been to flip that on its head um, and say that I have a right to this water, but I don't have a responsibility to look after the land which gives me that water. 
Yeah, and I actually think your point, um, it's, it's all a circular, it's a cycle, right? The more you've disconnected from nature, you find the more that the country you live in, and of course this is, there's, I don't have any research in the back of my hand to tell you like really facts with this, but I just from a, you know, looking at the world, a lot of the countries that are more developed with less nature or less connection to nature do tend to have, you know, this, like you call it the mental health epidemic, you know, it's really important, I think, for people to, to do that. And even just as Reinhardt had said, the way of life of how people were before technology, before we had buildings and before we were trying to rule the world, we were more in touch with nature. Nature took care of us and we took care of it. And it was just, it was such a great relationship. And now I find that, um, you know, one of the things that I always say that I try to do is just reconnect people with nature. And something that um, we talked about is how has colonialism embedded problems for everyone today. The global culture that we have sort of embedded into everyone's nation is a culture that depends on everlasting growth. We have essentially embedded that as a country within the way that we even measure how good a country is doing. I mean, the idea of developed versus undeveloping is essentially around GDP. Yeah, and the issue with that is this focus on endless growth and endless production means that we focus on producing rather than maintaining, which creates waste. And it also, you require endless resources for continual growth. And we don't have that. So where does it end? We have finite resources. And we've got to a point now where that is so embedded that for us to even think about what might be different, we have to reimagine a system. And I think that's often where you see governments struggle to know what the next step is to do. Because no government who buys into the, the global narrative is going to say, well, we need to stop growing. Our economy needs to stop growing. You're instantly going to get kicked out of power. Is it about time that we move to a world where the global south are talking to the global north saying, this is how we need to help you and this is what you should be doing. And these are the ways that you guys need to be moving forward. Because of that sort of the attitude of seeing certain areas in the world as being behind on like one evolutionary scale than others, we dismiss ways of living as backward rather than something to be learned from and potentially to be beneficial to us. It's interesting because this feels like a running theme, right? And it's all about, I guess, the legitimacy of knowledge. Um, and I think if we start from the beginning and look at how it's playing out here as well, a lot of what I consider colonialism to be is this crisis of who is, who has legitimate knowledge on the way things should be, ought to be. Um, and a lot of that is racialized and gendered. And there is this, I want to say, like, almost internalized arrogance that I think people from the global north carry and we don't even realize it until someone actually says this group of people that you've been told are underdeveloped your whole life no better than you how do you feel and i know that reinhard me and you have talked about this in the past about the fact that um in african nations oftentimes the idea of what conservation was was sold as something which all these very expert white people will come in and give a really good idea of what of what conservation is because we're the experts and in 30 years time, all the local people will know what to do and you'll be able to take over. And then 50 years on from that, so decades past when that was meant originally was sold, you know, you've still got the same people in charge from places like institutions in Cambridge, Oxford or Durham or, where, or wherever it is, 
who will then be sending their experts or as a professor and so-and-so, but they've actually got no on-the-ground experience. And people like yourself, Reinhard, are then having to argue for position when really all the experts who know all the stuff because you've been you've you're, you're, you've received the training, but you're not given the position that you perhaps should. Technically, in my native language, in, in so many like local language, we don't have the word conservation because it's the way we live the wildlife. Conservation is more or less came with you know, the colonialism kind of approach to what they call environmental conservation, which in most cases right now we realize is, is more or less like a con salvation. You know, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so there's other sort of uh, cons of where, you, you know, you come from wherever you come from. And because right now the, uh, there's a whole debate about going vegan and, 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 and no development and all that. And then poverty due to people giving birth and everything in Africa. But this comes from someone who lives in like a white house with so many lights on and everything. If you look at the carbon footprint of families living in Africa compared to the developed nations, we don't know where the focus should really be. It still happens. They still um, expatriate. You'll find out that someone who um, have the same training or with a bachelor's degree uh, from the UK and myself with myself from Cambridge, in my position, they'll be paid higher as expatriate. And then I'll be paid lower because basically we are the uh, culprits destroying nature. So it's still happening that that's kind of disparity. And I'm not even going to go into the gender disparity where women, there's a whole lot of con, I would say, happening around this. Do you feel you've had similar experiences, Lashanti? I do. Um, a lot of the researchers that we have working in the Bahamas on the various environmental issues, challenges, or even discoveries, um, they do come from other countries. And, and even for someone like me, if I was to take that next step and get a PhD, um, if I had not lived abroad in a country like the UK or the US or somewhere in Europe, you know, um, obviously northern, what is it, did you guys say the global north? If I had not been living there there for about five years to a decade and then come home, there would still be probably typical white male or any other foreigner would be preferred over me with the same qualifications and probably very similar experience, simply because um, I think to some extent, even just as, as countries, we still can sometimes look at the foreigner as, as the better um the, the smarter like they know what they're doing and, and very much is something that i think is prevalent in the global south in the caribbean and africa and all these countries that are not perceived to be of the upper you know developed nations and yes i would not even dive into gender because <laughs> oh, it's a kind of worms and and also to add into that look at an example where you are in chaos we studied or we are studying right now um if if i cite you know in my academic work a particular community's perspective about a particular topic, it will be regarded as a gray kind of literature that doesn't exist. So when giving citations and, you know, when writing reports and all that, it has to be peer reviewed. Who are these peers? I think as well, as well as the legitimacy of knowledge leading to the right people being overlooked by those who are wanting to change things, um, there are those who have no vested interest in changing things who have very different interests. For example, powerful corporations pursuing the endless production that we said does so much damage to the climate, it suits them. The most helpful voices are ignored. These powerful actors um, 
they can then continue not having to take responsibility for the damage that they are causing. Reminds me of a, a discussion um, I've had with Charlie. Charlie, you said something really interesting ages ago. And you said um, it's really important for us to talk about um, personal versus corporate versus governmental responsibility. Um, like those, those three paradigms. How do we how do we think about that right now? And and not to apportion blame, but to really think about um, how how we move forward. So one of the typical things you will see in any discussion, not just about climate or race or gender or, or class, for example, um, but you'll see it everywhere, is the personal, so the individual, will sort of point blame at the government or point blame at corporations. So they should be doing more. And the government will point blame at the industry and the business and the individuals. People should do better. And the industry should do better. The market. Uh, and then equally, then you get the corporations being like, oh, the government should regulate us more or regulate us less. Or, you know, people should take more responsibility. And it just becomes a, a very uh, blame game pointing circular loop. Um, and the discussion doesn't go anywhere. And we, we've seen that play out for 30, 40, 50 years with the United Nations COP conferences. Um, and something that I think is really useful um, uh, with all of this is exactly that is, I don't, for me, the answer to that question is well, everyone's responsible, ultimately. Um, and if we're, if, if we're ever to move past the current deadlock of who's to blame and who should pay for what, um, everyone has to take an honest look. And I, I've talked about everyone in, in the, the generic we as a global society needs to take a look at your role. We've all got a role to play in it, no matter what that is. I just talked about this concept the other day and I made sure to Google it or use a search engine to to double check the definition. But, you know, the whole concept that that I recently learned about the tragedy of the commons, you know, it's for everyone to use. It's not being governed, no regulations, but people act of their own self-interest. People, individual corporate government are acting of their own self-interest and point, pushing the responsibility of maintaining that, which you can look at as our natural resources, uh, on each other. So corporations, like Charlie said, everyone's blaming everyone else because no one has really been given the responsibility of it. And, and that's definitely what we see a lot. The moment we understand that it's everyone's responsibility, I think we'll, we'll take an action because right now, I refer to the tragedy of the commons and they're, they're technically greed, you know, wanting more for yourself and whichever group you are. And, only caring for your own interest. It, it also affects also if the, the whole debate around climate finance. Climate finance that comes to Africa is through mitigation, which is a business, technically, where it's a return on investment. Yes, I'm polluting environment, I'm giving you this money, do whatever thing you have to do to uh, rectify the mistake I'm, 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 I'm doing here, but I want my money back in two years, and then uh, with profit. And it's going to come back around. It's going to, and it's going to come in a way that we may not be aware of right now, but it's never that not, it's not always that they want their money back. It's always going to be that, well, since you can't return this favor, give us an island or give us, you know, this or vote with this or do that. And and I think that's something that also is can tie right back into this climate justice, right? Like, you know that we're vulnerable. You know that we need this. How can we say no? And especially any good government, how would a good government turn away funding that could help bring up their people or help protect their people from some of these climate change crisis challenges, you know, but then it always, you know, the check always comes back. <laughs> Even within the nations, we see the effects of that too, like the disparity, because we're talking about sort of the global north-south divide here, but with climate change, 
in the UK, you are more likely to be affected negatively if you're black than if you're white, because in London, um, in poorer areas, there's a disproportionate number of black people. And they will be hit the hardest by sort of, um, the poor quality of the air and other things. And when these issues happen, the social hierarchy that exists, those who are lower as such on that hierarchy or deemed to be of less value, will be hit the worst by the consequences of these negative things. There are hierarchies within nations, hierarchies between nations and hierarchy of the global north and south. And they are all connected because it is all kind of governed by this Western colonial idea of white superiority in a sense and the superior like power and money because obviously there are a lot of poor white people in the UK who will also be negatively affected by this but there's a pattern. You know obviously the people who are going to be mostly impacted a lot of times they are the ones living in poverty um, and yes unfortunately a lot of them are people of color but we, we will acknowledge you know, there are other um, there are Caucasians right who are affected by this and I always think about how as much as you know the bombs is not as developed. I'm grateful that we do not have industrial plants because they would have been placed right in the areas that are probably very cheap land, which is already low lying and people are living there already suffering from flooding. And, and these are the same corporations causing the gases, but now they're making the living conditions for these people worse. And it's like these people do not have the resources to fight it or to put um, themselves in a situation that can protect them. And we're not going to care until it's like, okay, well, this poor area is being affected by the heat wave and flooding. But if this was to flip and go into an area that had more affluent people, then they have the power with the money and the voice to actually make a change and to make people aware and to almost, I dare I say, make- Yeah, and I, and I think like, if you look at government responses, like if, if there were to be a climate issue that affected London like very intensely or, or cities, again, where it's the air and people in poor areas are most affected, like, can you have faith that a government who had an awful response to the Grenfell tragedy, and we know that there was a racialized element to that, can you trust that they wouldn't have the exact same response to a climate issue that's affecting more deprived and more disproportionately black areas than they would if it was hit in a very wealthy, rich part of the country? Because I don't think it would be any different. There's, there's a pattern here. It's, it's not presumptive to suggest that yeah. so this has been a lot and i said earlier that um you know we're going to talk about things that we can do um and how we can you know get involved in this but for now i think we should just take a breather 10 seconds of just silence take this all in steady yourself and calm down so 10 seconds let's go Great. Okay. So now we're going to talk about what we can do, how we can get involved um, and how we can really contribute as well as how to deal with climate anxiety. If you're feeling that right now, which is just essentially feeling really anxious about the future and the future of our planet because of climate change. So we're going to talk about all of that. So um, yeah, Charlie, do you have anything, anything to suggest? My, I guess something that I think is, scary i think a lot of people back away from me mentally in their, in their own mental space in their own mental bubble is the urgency of things that are needed um 
I personally think that people need to not think that the world is going to always get better. For me, that's something which is, you know, a fanciful thinking that we've been sold, at least for me, growing up in London, um, as, a, as a middle class white man, um, you've been sold this idea that you live better than your parents. And I, I think we all have to let go of that idea. And I think one of the most important things that we can do as individuals beyond our work and our actions is just to spend time becoming okay with the fact that the world is changing and, and you don't want to let that cripple you. Things need to happen now. And until you look after yourself, you're not going to be able to look after other people. Um, and so giving you giving yourself that space to sort of take in the immensity of the problem and then don't, don't let yourself get uh, uh, frozen with, with fear and act out of fear. Just let your own candle. Number one, we should not stress about it, of course. Yes, we, we are here. But then we should not act out of fear. Um, there's that mental health or wealth. And then small action, light a candle. And then we need to hold this government accountable, you know, to, to this policy that we have. But we just need to take an action. I don't know when we, what you're waiting to happen so that we can take an action, you know. I think sometimes people can think too big too fast. Um, it, it just goes back down to, again, this small step to a big change. What can you do right now to make a difference in your own life that does not impact you in such a negative way that it becomes detrimental to your finances, your health, or, or where you're living, you know? I, yeah, I think, um, number one, we, we need to reestablish that interesting value that you know, we had about nature. I mean, getting people out of watching a lot of movies and PSS into the wild, you know, where we go for low budget camping, hiking and all that. If you have so many people doing that, they will stand up and these are the future policy makers. These are the future engineers. These are the future Charlies and 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 and, and, Lashantis and all that. So we need to first get out of, get out, move out of your desk, just ditch your desk and go out. If you have a free time, go camping. I mean, the UK has beautiful places, wherever everyone is, go camping, buy a tent every weekend, get friends, go connect with nature, walk barefoot in the wild. I mean, once you fall in love with nature, you fight for it automatically. So just get out of there, enjoy nature, ditch your desk, and then the rest will follow as magic. And to, to touch on that point, if I could recommend a movie on a streaming platform, <laughs> Kiss the Ground, dash reverse climate change it, it talks about reconnecting with nature and some of the the physiological benefits of that like literally like how the, the chemicals and the microbes in the air and the soil and just how it, it changes some of your brain chemistry just literally being outside and appreciating nature in that way and so kiss the ground go watch it <laughs> at wolfson we do a lot of trying to help people along their sustainability journey and people will often arrive and say, well, what can I do? And that right there that we were talking about before, the legitimacy of knowledge, your people already there are devaluing what their opinion is. What should I do? What, what can I do, Anna? What can I, it's like, I don't know what you can do. What do you like? What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you find What do you find that makes you happy? Anything, you know, tell me what makes you happy. I like video games, great. So maybe you should tell, maybe you should make a video game that is, tells a story about a climate, climate uh, leader or, or a climate win, for example. And these are all really good points. Um, personal work and individual action is really, really good, but we also need collective action. 
Um, so a really good way to do that is to look around you, look at what's going on in your local community and use whatever skills you have to help in whatever way you can. Yeah, search. Search who in your area um, is doing the things that you're interested in. A lot of times, maybe the government agency relevant to that area, like for us, it's the Ministry of Environment. Um, maybe they have a list of NGOs that are doing work. Do a quick search on social media platforms and see, like, what are some of the influencers in your area talking about? Is there a cleanup happening? Right off the bat, there's, uh, for the, anyone living in Cambridge, in the Cambridge area, there's this thing, there's this webpage called the Cambridge Resilience Web which is a web of all the sustainability and resilience focused groups, both in the city and at the University of Cambridge. And we're and, and, and trying to make one for the Anglo-Ruskin University as well. And for anyone in the Cambridge area, Cambridge Resilience Web is a good place to start. And if you're looking for a group near you, um, like Lashanti has said, you can look online, look on social media. Um, one really good group is friendsoftheearth.uk where you just put in your postcode and it'll tell you about local climate action groups nearby. It's really easy to use. And all of this information that we're sharing here now, the resources, the advice, um, we're going to share as well on our social media in case anybody wants to check it out afterwards. So our Instagram and our Twitter are both at Shading Cam. It's also important to remember that feeling anxious and overwhelmed about all of this is completely normal. Just give yourself time to feel it and also give yourself time to feel anger if that's what you feel, um, whether that's about colonialism's, I guess, involvement in climate issues or just about the fact that we're in this situation in the first place. Just allow yourself to feel. Make sure that you don't read too much negative climate news on social media and stuff. And remember that there is time. We can all make a difference. So make sure that you take the time that you need.